This is The Think Tank with Dr. Michael Neal, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Packed show today. We have uh, our first guest is Candice Rideau. She is a Russia expert. A little later on, Daniel Rothenberg, who is uh, whose field is foreign policy. And we're going to talk about Russia, Ukraine and foreign policy. And a little after that, we'll bring on Chuck Coughlin to talk about some of the political implications, the State of the Union and the political side of all of this. Candice, first, welcome to the Think Tank. Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh as a Russia expert, what is your best sense of what is, what are the Russian objectives in this invasion of Ukraine? Russia has three objectives, really, I, perhaps more, but at least three that I think we can say with certainty. One is the occupation of Ukraine um, in perpetuity and the restoration of the former Soviet Union, uh, as as Putin understands it. Um, that's going to be key uh, for a second reason uh, and a second objective, which is to ensure that Russia has access to uh, seaways, especially warm water ports that are offered by the Black Sea, that are really key for the export of Russian goods and services. Um, that has been a really long-term objective, is to reclaim those littoral or shore areas of the Ukraine to ensure that Russia has a passageway, not only to uh, the Mediterranean, but also to the Indian Ocean, where many of its big clients like India, uh, Vietnam, and, and others uh, are also uh, important for the Russian economy. Uh, and last but not least, of course, is pushing for a new European security paradigm and uh, pushing back against NATO's you know, perceived encroachment on what uh, Putin and his uh, inner circle believe belongs to Russia rightfully and historically. Uh, changing the inter international security order uh, has to be done first through Europe from Putin's point of view. And it has, it, it, you know, this invasion has been his best lever for ensuring that the United States is forced into uh, a, a new posture when it comes to uh, the security situation in Europe. What do you think, from the Putin or Russian perspective, what do you think that uh, realignment would look like? Well, uh, I think certainly the intent is to keep some sort of frontline presence uh, right next door to NATO until such time as agreements around, uh, you know, intermediate ballistic missiles are negotiated and, and until such time as, um, you know, a new set of uh, rules on military exercises on the European continent are, are settled on, Russia will want to keep the pressure on uh, NATO partners. And to do so, it needs to eliminate that that so-called buffer state that lies between it uh, and the rest of Europe. Uh, so that's that's a really big part of the intent. I wonder if that is backfiring. I mean, I, I understood uh, just this week uh, Germany committed to roughly double its military budget. That would seem to run counter to his objectives. 
That's right. I think there's no question that there has been a miscalculation on the part of the Kremlin and Putin himself. Um, I think he way underestimated the um, the impact of having 190,000 troops roll over uh, Central Europe uh, right to the door of Germany and Poland and what that would mean for the psyche, uh, you know, of, you know, Europe's largest economy, Germany, uh, and how much um, things have changed there in terms of the political dispensation. Of course, we have Olaf Scholz, who was recently um, named uh, chancellor for Germany. So you have new leadership. It's not uh, the time of Angela Merkel anymore, uh, which, you know, I think Putin, again, uh, did not understand how much things had changed, how quickly in Germany, and how much his own um, militation around, uh, you know, NATO itself had forced Europe to, to look inward finally and start asking some very hard questions about whether they were going to embrace this idea of strategic autonomy from the United States or they were going to double down on the NATO partnership. And in the end, it seems they doubled down on NATO partnership. He, he seems to have been the best friend of a united of a united NATO that was prior to this seemed to be getting a little shaky. Yes. Um, but although I think there's a temptation to overinterpret signals, you know, uh, last year, for instance, we had the kerfuffle over uh, France and Australia and the, the so-called AUKUS deal in which the United Kingdom, the U.S. and Australia agreed uh, to build a nuclear um, a strategic submarine fleet. Uh, you know, while, of course, that was upsetting, and of course, uh, France, you know, took punitive action, so to speak, very, very quickly. And it certainly was a sign of, of I think, some poor handling on the part of all of those engaged uh, in that deal. It, it was not a death knell, you know, for the NATO alliance uh, by any stretch. And, you know, NATO is a, a big organization. It has a strong presence in Belgium and Brussels and the headquarters. Uh, you know, 27, 28 nations uh, have been for years now, almost 75 years uh, have been working together to support the current security architecture in Europe, and very few have the resources, other than the United States and perhaps Great Britain and France and Germany, to really move that 28-member body one direction or the other. Uh, so again, I think it was gross miscalculation by Putin. He assumes that the U.S., whatever the U.S. says with relation to the NATO, is how things go down, and that's actually not the case. In, in this case, I, my impression, without having a great understanding of it, my impression is that in contrast to most of the period of the existing of NATO, it seemed to me like uh, Germany, France, and basically most of Europe was taking a, a kind of a they – were, they were sort of out there further than we were, at least publicly. Do you think I'm wrong on that? Well, I don't think you're wrong, I, but I also think that there was a kind of a, a, an optimism and an enthusiasm to try and show that Europe was prepared. But more importantly, let's not forget, this is happening on European soil. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. You, know, you can imagine a similar situation. With, I mean, just an imaginary hypothetical. You know, Canada decided uh, that suddenly they wanted a piece of Vermont, uh, you know, uh, what, what would our reaction be? Of course, it would be, you know, extremely um, visceral. It would be strong. It would be fast. 
um, and it probably would be ill-considered on a couple of occasions. Or, or like, Russia wanted a piece of Canada. <laughs> right, right. Well, which, you know, again, like, you know, the Arctic is uh, not that far away, right? So, yeah. But nonetheless, I, I do think that there was a course. I think Europe, I wouldn't say Europe was ahead of us. I think, in fact, uh, if anything, what's been interesting is that there's, there's clearly been some quiet diplomacy um, well preceding the actual invasion itself. Uh, even perhaps as early as, you know, this fall, uh, potentially even as early as September or August, where there was a, some sort of pivot uh, on the part of the White House and a recognition that um, there needed be, to be some repair to the NATO relationship after the Afghanistan uh, exit and debacle. Uh, and I think that probably precipitated a bunch of conversations, and it just so happened at the same time, you know, the buildup on the uh, Ukraine-Russian border probably accelerated a lot of the U.S. diplomacy, but that was done quietly, um, which I think was actually rather smart. Two qu final questions for you. Uh, first of all, are, in your impression, is this just Putin or is this a collective decision of the entire uh, ruling uh, Russian establishment? And the following follow-up question is, if this goes badly, do you think it's possible Putin could lose his grip on power? So Putin, uh, without a doubt, is the center of gravity for all of these strategic decisions. But, you know, for many, many years, there is a whole class of, you know, military, um, sort of security elites, as well as, frankly, you know, oligarchs who have supported this position, who genuinely believe that uh, the United States, Europe, uh, you know, NATO are aiming for that. Uh, and they're aiming to kind of end the order with, that they have ruled for the last, you know, 25, 30 years. So there is a real constituency uh, that, you know, reaches well beyond the Kremlin and even, you know, certainly beyond Putin's circle. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, pro-Russian uh, nationalists. There are a lot of ultra-nationalists uh, who have become more prominent in the political culture of Russia. So it's not just Putin alone. Um, however, uh, there are tensions. Yeah, there are tensions within that elite group. And there are tensions amongst the, the other kind of elite intelligentsia of Russia uh, that has been, you know, systematically suppressed, assassinated, targeted, shut down. And, you know, this is an old story in Russia. Uh, there have always been these tensions, uh, and they often bubble up when the nation is in crisis and on the precipice of collapse. And to your second question, um, is this the beginning of the end for Putin? Uh, it's possible. It certainly is possible, we, but we just don't know how that will play out. Um, you know, at, at minimum, people will begin to question his logic. And, you know, the longer the sanctions crisis or it imposes uh, pain on Russia, uh, I think that, you know, his inner circle will continue to question. And we've already seen signs of that from Oleg Deripaska, you know, who famously has just now mm. called Putin out and, and questioned the logic of the well of the war. So... I think we'll see more of that. Let me slip into—I said that was last, but I have one more thing I'm curious about. To what extent uh, did we renege on a commitment to not expand NATO into the former Warsaw Pact? I know there was not a treaty, but my sense is there was an understanding. Is that some of this, and did we really renege on a commitment in that area? Well, there's a lot of debate about that. Um, you know, has Russia reneged on its commitments uh, with the Budapest Agreement of 1994? I think the answer is yes. 
there's been a lot of reneging and counter-reneging. Uh, and that has been, that's the fundamental problem right now with where we are. We have different uh, realities. <laughs> well, we have, we have different understandings of what commitment means. And frankly, um, Russia and its elite leadership hasn't changed. And yet we've had, you know, five presidents yep. <laughs> since, uh, you know, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And one thing that I think is really hard to convey to people who haven't spent time and lived in and worked in Russia, as I have, is how much Russians, Russians misunderstand political power in America. They and, kind of and almost transpose. I got you. We're we're way out. We've held you over. I know you have to go, and I thank you very much. We're going to be back in just a moment with Daniel Rothenberg talking about many of these same issues in the Think Tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Our thanks to Candace uh, Rondeau, a Russian expert we talked to for the last uh, 15 uh, minutes or so here. Uh, Daniel Rothenberg, as promised, is a foreign policy expert. Let's pick up uh, just FYI to the audience. You did not get to hear what she had to say, but let me move a little bit. This Ukrainian invasion seems to have united the Western alliance in a way that I cannot remember having been the case for many, many years. Yes, Mike, I think that's exactly right. It's it's quite extraordinary. You know, in the in recent years, there was a lack of clarity as to what NATO was all about. Was it really important? And the invasion has transformed that in, in ways, just like you say, that that was unimaginable before. Uh, I, I mean, essentially, I, it, it, in particular, I think Trump was just he he questioned whether uh, the alliance was even necessary. I think there were some U- European countries that were probably wavering on that. Uh, uh, the one consequence we mentioned in the other session so far, Germany's made a commitment to double their defense budget. That's uh, that's pretty striking. It's a big deal, especially you know one of the unifying elements of the post-war. German national identity was pacifism, right, and an effort to avoid any rebuilding of the of the great you know, German military. Oh, no, nowhere is that more evident in the German national anthem. Which, if you look at the historical version, the words they used kept the same music. The words of the old one were essentially were were uber uber alia. We're we're the best in the world, or whatever. Now it says, yeah, we're kind of we're okay, but other nations are okay <laughs> too. Uh, it's 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 like. It's like the you know we're asserting we are the anti Nazis. <laughs> well, you know, there's nothing like a common threat to unify disparate people, whoever they are. And we're seeing in Europe, you know, it's a in some ways a new world. There's even talk of a, a, a polling coming out of Finland, you know, famously independent state uh, about you know greater public interest in in joining NATO, which previously was never discussed. And Sweden, and regardless, mm-hmm. and Sweden, which has not been a member. And Sweden, correct? Yeah, I mean, there's. You know, the the dangers, I think people simply didn't imagine an aggressive war, a war of aggression mm-hmm. from this this large military power, Russia, in moving westward. That was, of course, the defining feature of, of NATO and, and the Cold War era. And the people had pushed that aside. And what we're seeing now is just really changing politics in Europe and to some degree around the world. One particularly provocative thing is Putin sort of in vague terms, but unmistakable, orders higher nuclear readiness and uses some ambiguous language that uh, 
includes some inference that we might, under some circumstances, use nuclear weapons? I mean, the great fear of any the great fear of war is escalation. And the great fear of war among great uh, nuclear armed powers is an escalation that that even that that makes even a potential for the use of nuclear weapons. Perhaps in the in the post Cold War era, people haven't been thinking so much about the gravity of nuclear weapons, but they remain by far the most destructive weapons out there. And any use of nuclear weapons would just take conflict to a level that nobody wants to see, and is just enormously dangerous for. for human race. Uh, this is why I think uh, the one byword of all of this that's inviolate is we don't want Russians and Americans shooting at one another under any circumstances. We can do it through surrogates, right. but uh, you, you don't want any American-Russian confrontation whatsoever. And interestingly, in Syria, there, were, there was really robust efforts for deconfliction where you have Russian Air Force as well as coalition, U.S. and coalition forces out there in the airspace, and they did a very good job of avoiding any accidents. Well, we didn't we? I think we bombed and killed some Russians, but the Russians immediately jumped in and said those were not soldiers, those were irregulars or something. We we shared a mutual interest in de-escalating. So your previous guest, Candace Rondeau, my colleague at Arizona State University, is an expert on the the Wagner Group, and there was a specific incident uh, where a, a group of um, members of the Wagner Group, so for part of kind of a private security contractor that's closely affiliated with the Russian military, they engaged in a, a pretty substantial battle with um, U.S. Uh, special forces and special operations and others, and they were wiped out. Um, but Exactly what you say is right. There was every effort to minimize the larger implications of this to make it seem like they were an independent body and there was really no relationship to the Russian state. But um, Syria's situation is, is quite different, and I think hey, you're absolutely right. Hey, we we're out of, we're out of time. I thank you very much. We'll be back sure. after the break with Chuck Coughlin talk about the politics of all of this in the think tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Well, we've been discussing the Ukraine invasion, uh, the Russian uh, part in that. And uh, uh, Chuck Coughlin's here. And uh, before we just hit the button to go on the air, we had a little discussion. And I think I think we're on the same page that uh, on the politics side of this, this has a potential to be a, a game changer. Not only for Joe Biden, but for political discourse in the country. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to how this is going to roll out. I'm really curious to see how the political culture reacts to this, because what we've, you know, when the wall came down, as we were just talking about, when, when the nature of that relationship changed, it was like we didn't have a unifying enemy in the world. So guess what? We've become our own political enemy. Mm-hmm. You know, Democrats picking on Republicans on race theory and, you know, minority rights and police rights, Republicans responding to that, you know, in a culture war of our own without without remembering that we're still the best country in the world and we are a light for everybody else. And we have freedoms that nobody else does. And some of the other countries, I think, forgot that or are frankly focused on legitimate flaws that we had that now, in light of the Russian invasion yeah. uh, look a little smaller than they did a few weeks ago. You know, gratitude. I think it was Cicero that said gratitude is the key virtue. Mm-hmm. And we've lacked gratitude in our political culture. Mm-hmm. 
We've no, we have no gratitude in our political culture. It's constant criticism. And what this has done has been able to, it creates a window into an alternative universe of going, wow, look at all those Ukrainians suffering and how much, and they're fighting. You know, it's not like, you know, it's not like the the Afghani premier who l- flew out of town. Yeah. And, and it's, oh, yeah. boy, that's a, quite yeah. a contrast. The, yeah. the Russians thought yeah. that Zelensky was going to do exactly that. He was going to bug out. Right. And he had, uh, he had a spine that they didn't realize was there. Yeah, which goes back, I mean, to your experts that were talking earlier. That's a fascinating thing mm-hmm. for him to make that misjudgment, you know, to, to miscalculate what was going to go down here because, you know— I was in sixth grade. I, I, you know, you always get those book reports when you're in sixth grade, and you have to pick a pick a country to do your mm-hmm. your. I picked Ukraine as a as wow. a as a republic of the Soviet Union because it was fascinating. It was, and I remember, you know, the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, the Crimea, the access to the sea. I mean, it was the heartland of what was the Soviet Union, and I think Putin knows that. I mean, there's so much wealth. And geographic importance with that country that he can't let it go. As your expert said, he can't let it go because he's diminished by it. And But he forgot that that was true of them, too, that they understood they had an identity of Ukrainian people. Uh, that they were going, they're not going to give up and roll over, with the exception of a few on the eastern yeah, seg- right. uh, provinces that are consider themselves Russian, though maybe less so now than before. Yeah, uh, I mean, even some of the Russian speaking, I, I think, are wavering. But the the majority of the country is nationalist. If they were, if if Ukraine wasn't a country before this week, <laughs> it is now. It is now. Yeah, all the major metropolitan areas. Uh, have solidified. I mean, in all the video footage, the footage of the guys on Snake Island, you know, you know, condemning the the stuff. I have people tell me every day stuff because I don't watch a lot of YouTube mm-hmm. or video or social media. But all the stuff that now gets traction in the world of acts of heroism yeah. that people are doing, you know, the guy carrying the landmine while he's smoking a cigarette <laughs> uh, and putting a landmine out there. I mean, that I mean, that's that I think shocks the American public. And it makes you think, while somebody really values their freedom and they're willing to go to war for it and give their life, women picking up guns, volunteers coming out. I mean, it's a real act of national heroism. And I said it's a great thing for us, our country, to ponder upon. And one thing I hope people would ponder in that area is, you know what? If our gas prices go up a little bit, stop whining. Well, that's the next point, yeah. right? If that's the if that's the sacrifice we have to make to crush Russia, mm-hmm. I mean, I would have teed that up with, uh, in the in the State of the Union. Yeah. I'm like yeah. I would have said that. I think I, you know, and I don't know. Yeah, I, look what it, your it, grandfathers it, did in D Day. Okay, it, now right. you're going to pay a little higher gas prices. And in I situations mean, like this, I mean, I don't know. You don't know. I don't know what President knows. I don't know. You know what they know about Biden's or on uh, Putin's state of mental well-being. There is some discussion about right, that. and so you, you don't know all the other operations mm-hmm. that are taking place. So you know this is bleacher talk right here. This mm-hmm. is back of the room coffee cup talk. But you know, so far it's gone pretty good for the president. I mean, the imagery that's coming out of here, the economic sanctions, the world unity the world that has come about, incredible, hasn't happened since you know Saddam invaded. Kuwait, right? Remember that? Yep. And the whole, yep. world, yeah, whole world with us. Whole world and with us. And 9-11. And yep. 9-11, yep. which we quickly 
lost that. Squandered. Squandered by overreaching. By overreaching. So do not overreach. There's an act of political self-control, which Mm -hmm. also is a virtue here, Mm -hmm. of how how do we act now to foment the outcome that we want. Clearly, that's a trigger. That's mm-hmm. clearly another trigger that the president can pull in sanctioning oil. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a collapse trigger for the Soviet Union, though, that, or for Russia. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that is – we know that will crush their economy. Well, the other thing – and I've heard discussion – well, they, Russia had built up all these reserves, but there seems to be some seizures going on and, yeah. and, and, and freezing out of those yeah. that they may not be able to use those reserves. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I think we're pretty good at tracking money now. I mean, <laughs> we've been doing that with drug lords and people from all over the world. The Chinese ought to be taking note of this too. You know, the, the, the bigger question, I think – which should make us all think about the global economy. I mean, economists always speak to globalization as an outright good. Mm. And not always, right? Because um, there's a social consequence to that, too, of interdependency. And then where are we as it relates to their values on human freedom? If they're not our same values, as clearly they're not in China, as clearly they're not in Russia— why, 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 to what degree should we be participating in with them? That's a political narrative and a discussion that we could have. I mean, that we should have because, yes, it, it costs us more at the gas pump. It may cost us more to build, to do mining in the United States. Think about that. Mm-hmm. You know, all the precious minerals that get mined in China mm-hmm. that we need in all of our tech products today, you know, in copper. You know, we're a copper state, and that was our number, you know, it's on the seal, Mike. And, and so we still got the copper. It's just expensive to get out. It's almost impossible to get out. We're seeing the couple mining projects in the state here now with environmental movements saying, you know, we can't do that because it's, it's going to, you know, it's, it's against the, the Forest Service rules or it's against, you know, um, you know, but some of these mines get all the permits, get ready to go, and then get stopped. Because of environmental objections. Well, I don't see that happening in China. I don't see that happening in the Soviet Union. So what are we missing out on? And what are we committing ourselves to with all these interbalanced, interconnected decisions? Well, and it'll be a balance, too, because there's things environmentally that would be a step too far. But I think this is probably – Change that balance a bit. Well, in Germany, shut Germany had shut down all its nuclear power plants. It was in the process of decommissioning them, believing that they were going to have the ability to rely on Russian gas. Yeah, and I, it That's, seems to me premature. Yeah, right. I mean, most most of the side we had uh, the physicist Lawrence Krauss in here, yeah. you know, and basically said, you know, you want clean energy. Uh, nuclear is part of that. Yeah, this right. Is, this is one of the big mistakes of the left. They equate right. uh, nuclear with with unclean. No, nu- nu- that solar, water, and things like that can be the ultimate goal, but. For a considerable period of time, nuclear has got to be part of the mix. I mean, the question comes up here in Arizona, the, the commitment to decarbonize the environment. That's a great idea, but are we there? And I answer no to that because we don't have battery technology sufficient to mm-hmm. store. And then you ask about the batteries themselves, the 
the lithium. I mean, I'm going to. I'm not the engineer, so I'm not the guy. But I know there's precious minerals that go into, yeah. you know, the the all of the battery technology. Where's that coming from? How do we build more batteries? How do we build better batteries? You know, before we commit to no carbon, because that carbon load needs to be there for peak power. At the yeah. end of the day, when people come home, they got to turn everything on, and the battery goes. You know, is going to run out unless you're blessed with a natural battery. The biggest battery in the world. The sun. <laughs> no, no. Well, yeah, yeah. But no. That's that's not a battery. That's right. a power source. Is in uh, Virginia, West Virginia, yeah. and there are two major reservoirs. Yeah. And the battery power is to use the sun to pump the water upstream. Uphill. Right. So that in when the sun goes down, you have hydroelectric. Right. You know, we don't. I mean, I, are, I don't know that we right. have that capacity here. Well, they were talking about that on the yeah. Colorado. They yeah. were talking about that on the Colorado, but you know that that's a. That th- those are decisions that we make, but we I think we take for granted um, that we're independent. Well, we're not. We're not really free until. And this is the notion that you know chaps a lot of economists is buy American. Mm-hmm. Well, what that means I think is buy American because we become a sustainable economy to ourselves. And economists don't really like that because well, and and it and and there's a there's a, a choice a balance there with human rights and all the th- types of things that we would expect other countries to do and the jeopardy it would put this country in as we've seen in the supply chain and stuff. Buy American. It has a has a benefit in terms of the employment. Yep. Uh, but it also has a cost. Yep. This stuff's going to probably cost us more. Yep. More expensive. So, so uh, you know, mixed mixed deal, and and people get resi- <laughs> you know, it's kind of like Walmart was, was a Buy America store for many many years, and they discovered that didn't work out so well, so they started importing cheap <laughs> cheap Chinese goods, and right. uh, and essentially their business went up, and our supply chains get extended, and we find out in a COVID that that's not great. But what it does come back to is that we are in the best country in the world. And that's the opportunity to focus on that narrative. We'll be back with Chuck Offlin further discussing the political implications of all this when we return in the Think Tank in just a moment. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Uh, we're talking with Chuck Coughlin. Uh, we've been talking about Ukraine, the Russian invasion, and uh, have moved on to kind of the political implications. And And one of the things we've kind of been hinting around is the potential for all of this to really change the nature of our political discourse. As a country, we've been at one another's throats for five or ten years now. It's been right. bad. Uh, right. we've, we've seen ourselves as Republicans and Democratic tribal members rather than as Americans. Nothing like a foreign threat to <laughs> bring to the bring, tribe back together bring, again. Bring us back together or at least force some thought about yeah. what where our identity really is. Um I, I I saw a little bit of that in the president's State of the Union speech, though I didn't see I, I think there's more yet to be said. Yeah, I mean, I thought he did a good job. I was, I was hoping personally he'd quote Kennedy, the "Ich bin ein Berliner" speech, you know, and we're, we're all Ukrainians. We're, yeah, we're all Ukrainians <laughs> yeah. today um, because we that value our, right. Yeah. We're all we're all free. We all value human freedom, and human freedom at its highest form is to serve others. It's it's the the freedom to serve others. Um, and could, not a could government have used, could have used a Ted Sorensen. In right, <laughs> absolutely, and and you know he hit, he hit a double. He could have hit a grand slam, but he hit a double. Um, but what that says to me is that there's a giant uh, narrative path 
here for somebody to pick up, um, to somebody to pick that up and move away from the critical, you know, tribal narrative of one another to what is what why is america great what is great about america how do we distinguish ourselves from other countries and why and what is our role in the world um you know don't yeah we're we're many sins but we still are the best and and what and what are we doing to address that and what is the role that we have and 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 i think there's a giant narrative there for somebody to pick up um, you know, I've, I've run a lot of campaigns in my life. I've been around political figures in my life. Uh, I don't, uh, gosh, I don't want to offend any of my friends when I say this, but what I've said to people all the time is most politicians are followers. They follow the narrative of the public debate and they, they creep into cr- caves where they can validate, particularly in the internet era where you know you can validate in a Facebook group or a TikTok or a, or Twitter, um, you, you know you get valid instant validation back. Especially if you're out to the extremes and you're giving people red meat, right? And but what about where what I found in my career, and I've been blessed to work with like four of them, who were real leaders. Um, John McCain was a leader. Um, you know, I got to work with him. He was a leader. He didn't back down from fights. He would sit in rooms and take it all and give it right back. He had his failings, yes, but he was a leader. Grant Woods, God rest his soul, he would too. He, you wouldn't agree with him, but he'd give it right back to you all the time. He'd fight for what he believed in. Um, Fife Symington, through the trials of his life, um, showed that he was a leader with how he governed and how he listened and how he built coalitions. Jan Brewer, when she was governor in the darkest of times, raised taxes as a Republican and expanded Medicaid coverage when the Affordable Care Act was at a 9% approval rate with Republicans and we had two-thirds majorities in both houses. She led um, because the public agreed with her. Um, and we knew that. And that's leadership is when you define a new path forward. And unfortunately, that's mostly in my experience. I've been blessed to work with people like that. It's not the rule. It's the exception. It's why we call people exceptional, um, because they're the exception to the rule. And there's an opportunity now for in this really interesting cycle out here that we have going on right now. Um, we have a competitive Senate race. We have a competitive governor's race. We have uh, a secretary. Every statewide office is up. Um, all the legislature's up this year. We have congressional races. There's two or three of them are really competitive. It will be really interesting to see who in the Arizona um, Penelope uh, will can do this. And it's not it's not something that's normal. It, most people don't have the skill set to do this. You know, I think. Clearly, you need somebody who can communicate yes. at, at a higher – you know, in recent history, the only one that I – that comes to my mind that I think that w- was capable of that is out of the game now, and that's Barack Obama. There's no red state America. There's no blue state America. It's right. the United States of America. I think that ins- – re- talking to people at an inspirational level got him in places in western Pennsylvania where no Democrat had any right. you know, prayer of doing it. Well, he's out of the game. 
I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to think who is it that could, could fulfill that kind uh, of inspiration. That's role. what everybody's asking me out here. Like, who's going to do that? I don't know. Because you know, you mean, know what? It's, it's, not, it's not something we'll know until we see it. Because yeah. it's not something a consultant can say to somebody and say, oh, you know, here's your talking points. Go do this. Yeah, go, it, be, it's, it's, go, of, go play go this be role. Go inspirational. You got to have They have in to you. intuitively understand and believe, and, and voters will voters otherwise will see it, yeah. that they have to feel it. They have to communicate it. They have to embody it. And they have to act it out. And, and you can't do that unless all of that's true. And so it'll be really interesting to see, you know, who who owns that message. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of them with the DNA um, that uh, the, the life DNA to do that and go through as I know them. There's a lot of them with life DNA to do that uh, on the Senate level. You know, you have. Uh, um, Kelly on the Democrat on the Democratic side, who been kind of silent, hasn't really yet. had a narrative no. that that has owned. But you know, combat astronaut, you know, he's all got the, the bio. He's it, got the bio. For he's sure. got the bio to fill it. But is yeah. he going to fill the suit? Can he I mean, fill the suit? And you're a United States senator from Arizona. <laughs> yeah. All the discussion has not been on him. Mick McGuire's running for Senate. Um, you know, he's a, a soldier. Um, he gets it. He understands. It. He's cleaned up the National Guard. On the Republican side, I'd argue that the Attorney General, or, you know, Mark Burnovich can get. I mean, he's from Eastern Europe, for God's sake. His family, his family, and his history and his legacy, and he still acts that way a lot of the times. You know, <laughs> you know, with his nunchucks, he's ready to come after you. You know, uh, on, on the governor side, you know, I. I the the uh, Kanasik family, which Karen's part of, you know, Andy was uh, the county supervisor when he, you know, when when Joe Arpaio and Andrew Thomas were raiding the offices, and he stood tall. He stood tall in the saddle and said, "I'm not going." And he, and ended up those two guys ended up leaving. He he won. Um, I can't. He's a personal friend, so I. It was an amazing act of courage for him to do that, and it, he didn't ever blink because it's in his DNA. His dad, I knew. I was blessed to know his dad. He's still around. God bless. Carl. Kinesi. Carl yep. was president of the state senate during the Meekum trial. Mm-hmm. He got beat after that, but I don't think he ever regretted what happened. Because he stood in the saddle. Well, this is one of the things that we're lacking. People who, I think, as you say, the DNA is such that they're going to do the right thing. And they're going to, and when somebody goes to you and says, this may cost you their seat, they're going to say, well, what, what am I here for <laughs> yeah, if, not to, if right. not to do something right? And if I take a political risk, two, it's not the end of my life. Two things that care, McCain, always yeah. find causes greater than your own self-interest. Yeah. And Bre- be willing to risk it all. Jan Brewer. You know, doing the right thing is always going to be the hard thing. Or I, I bastardize that, but that's essentially and what her mother taught. Her. I think they both be- ultimately benefited from it. But you don't you know, know that when you're going through Absolutely. It. You can't do it for it, that reason. No, because you wouldn't wish this type of pain on anybody. You wouldn't wish that, you know, Andrew Thomas and Joe Arpaio were, you know, bu- bugging your office and giving you subpoenas and putting you under indictments, mm-hmm. you know, with guys like, uh, you know, uh, Don Stapley. You know, they indicted him, for God's sake, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it's like unbelievable pressure, which we don't remember uh, that people come under, and it's those moments that you know the bright light really shows who you are. 
Well, and we're having on in a couple of weeks. Our uh, our county recorder fits that bill in terms of standing up. To, Absolutely, to got got in the game, and it was he found out how tough it was. Yeah, yeah, but willing. But he to stood do, in the saddle, and, and and I think start did as a matter of principle, not as a matter of calculation. Right. No. Thanks very much, Chuck Koff. This was a great show. Uh, if you want to reach me uh, for any matter, the website is mikeoneal.org. There are links there to email and uh, all the various social media. We'll see you next week in the Think Tank.